Good morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. Where is everyone? There were no barriers to get getting here this morning, right? We all should should be here. Um, I'm kidding. Bless your souls. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you for braving that weather just to get here this morning. I was so wet that I was concerned that I was going to get electrocuted just doing a sound check on this mic this morning. It's probably good that we stripped down our band just to have minimal electronics this morning in the midst of uh, what I think is Hurricane Danny. Maybe he's shown up early and made his way to Peachtree City. So glad that you guys are here in the midst of all of that insanity going on out there. Um, we, we began two weeks ago a series entitled Why Church? And, and the purpose of this series, it's a four-week series that we're running through where we're seeking to unpack the DNA of our church, the core values of our church, um, but, but even in the bigger scheme of things, uh, at a cosmic level, we're seeking to answer the question, why are we here? Why do you and I exist? What's our purpose? And in order to answer that question, we have to get higher up in the sky to answer the question, what is God up to? What is God about? What is his mission? And so um, a couple of weeks ago, I sought to answer that question by putting out a thesis statement that God's ultimate aim is to glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. And I argue that that doesn't make him narcissistic. It actually makes him God. That if God were to look outside of himself to something else or someone else for his source of joy and satisfaction, if he were to ultimately glorify someone or something else beyond himself, whatever that is might actually be God. And if you go to that person or thing and he or she or it is doing the same thing, you just follow that trail of breadcrumbs until you get to someone or something that says, I can't go beyond myself. And when you've gotten there, you've actually gotten to God. That The God-centeredness of God actually authenticates his very deity. And so you can go back and listen to that message from a couple of weeks ago. It's online on our website if you weren't here to hear me arguing from a, a biblical standpoint for the God-centeredness of God. But if God is ultimately on a mission to bring glory to himself, and I believe he is, we see that in a number of ways. We see that through the grandeur of creation. So from supernovas to comets, we see the glory of God displayed. From black holes to galaxies, we see the glory of God displayed. From rivers and streams to mountains and valleys, we see the glory of God displayed because all of creation sings of the glory of God. And then on a very uh, small, intricate level, we see the glory of God as well in the way that God puts together, knits together a baby in his or her mother's womb. Um, The very fact that you breathe and you don't have to think about doing it. You just do. You just breathe. You'll do that again three seconds from now, and you won't even think about the fact that you're, you're doing it. The way that God designed the intricacies of the human body sings of his glory. But a couple of weeks ago, I argued that um, the grandeur of God's creation and all of its greatness, nor the, the smallest, most intricate designs of God's creating, sing of the glory of God as, as the high point of his glory on display. Rather, we see God's glory um, at its apex in all of human history when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, so that before the foundations of the world, everything was looking forward to that moment in human history when Jesus would die for sinners like you and me. That's why your entire Old Testament foreshadows the coming of Jesus. He's the hero of the entirety of the Old Testament. That's why in the wake of Jesus' coming, we look back to that moment in human history. Your very calendar is divided up into B.C. and A.D., before Christ and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. We just can't seem to get away from the person and work of Jesus, even culturally. 
And if that's true, it's, it's liberating for us in a sense. I, I, I went to this issue uh, a couple of weeks ago that, that for us at a personal level, we need to experience a, Com- a Copernican revolution. Um, I, I unpacked that Nicholas Copernicus uh, in the 1500s was the guy who revolutionized our understanding of the cosmos. That before uh, Copernicus came along, we all believed that Uh, The earth was the stationary, non-moving center of the solar system, and that the sun and and all the other planets revolved around planet earth, which makes sense, right? Because our planet's the one with life on it. Why would we not be at the center of everything? And Copernicus argued that, no, actually the sun is at the center, and uh, all of the planets, including planet earth, revolve around the sun, orbit around the sun, so that my point in sharing that history lesson is that many of us, including those in the church oftentimes, need a Copernican revolution. That we think that the world revolves around us ultimately, that we're the point, that we're the center, that this divine drama that's been unfolding since creation and even before that has been waiting for our arrival onto the stage and now the main act is here and we can get on with the show because we as characters have now arrived at our point in human history, and nothing could be further from the truth. The reality is that you're not the center and neither am I. Rather, Jesus is the center. And if we take that space analogy a little further, you're the moon, really, and so am I. And our role is similar to that of the moon, that when you look up at the sky at night, you know that the moon is not creating its own light, right? That it's reflecting the light of the sun for us to see. And in the same way that the moon reflects the sun's light, We are created and intricately designed with a purpose to reflect the light of God, the glory of God for the world to see. And so here's the beauty of this idea of God's God-centeredness and his display of that in the cross of Jesus Christ. You and I, if we believe that, are actually free from trying to be the center. We're free from trying to make a name for ourselves. We're free from trying to build a kingdom for ourselves, we're free from grasping at the empty chase of self-exaltation. But going alongside of that freedom, like parallel train tracks, is this reality that you have great purpose, that you are designed with a unique purpose because God has positioned you at this point in human history, August 2015, at this place in human history, um, South Metro Atlanta, with a unique purpose in mind that no one else can fulfill except you. So that you work in a specific workplace that um, most likely no one else in in this very room works in. Uh, You're a part of a flesh and blood family that uh, most likely no one else in this room is a part of. Uh, You have friend groups that are different from others around you in this room. And you live in neighborhoods that are different from others in this room as well. So that you have been uniquely positioned to reflect the glory of God in ways that others in this room just can't do. And so... We're being launched as the church on mission with a unique purpose, that you're freed from the empty chase of self-exaltation, and yet you have great purpose in life. Uh, You don't just exist to live and breathe and pay taxes until you die. God has uh, a distinct purpose for you. And so the purpose of this series, in light of, of that cosmic level kind of philosophical existential thinking about why we're here and what God is up to, our purpose is now to take a look at three um, components of DNA over the course of the remainder of this series, which I believe if we not only buy into, but actually commit our lives to, uh, we'll experience more of of a, uh, a brilliance, you might say, or a radiance to the light that we're shining in terms of our reflecting the glory of God. 
And those three DNA components are this. The gospel of God, the community of God, and the mission of God. That if you understand these three things and not only understand them, but commit your life to living these values out, to experiencing them, you'll reflect more of God's glory to the world around you, and you'll experience a deeper joy because you'll, you'll now be aligning your purpose to God's very purpose at a cosmic level. And so last week, we looked at the first of these values, namely the gospel. And we took a look at 1 Corinthians 15, and not only did I unpack the gospel message itself, sharing the good news of the person and work in Jesus with you, um, not only did I unpack why uh, the work of Jesus and his person is good news for us, but I also sought to unpack for us this um, uh, misconception to press on it a little bit, this idea that the gospel is the entry ramp onto the highway of Christianity that we then abandon and leave in the rearview mirror as we get uh, into the fast lane, as we move uh, on our journey toward sanctification, toward Christian growth. And so I said this last week, I said that many of us would be offended um, if someone were to come up to us and say, hey, um, we're going to have a gospel 101 class, and, and I think you're a good candidate for that. I think you should sign up for that. That most of us would bristle a little bit if someone were to say that to us, that we would respond with, I, I think I probably should be in at least a gospel 102 class. I mean, I get the basics of Christian doctrine, so I'm not sure you really know me very well that you would um, extend that invitation to me. And yet over and over again, uh, Paul says, and not just in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, but throughout the course of the New Testament, um, he goes on to say to Christians, let me remind you of what you think you've graduated beyond. Let me remind you of the gospel. That Paul knew that our propensity is to wander from the gospel. That Paul knew that we would find ourselves falling into the trap of believing that the gospel is, is only um, applicable to our past tense failures of sin and unbelief and applicable in a future tense way that uh, one day Jesus is going to come and set everything right. And we fail to miss all of the present tense power of the gospel at work in our lives in between those two bookends. And so, yes, we're, we unquestionably want to celebrate the work of the gospel past tense in your, your life. We want to celebrate the work of conversion, and, and we want to celebrate the work of God sanctifying you up to this moment in your life. And we want to celebrate the future reality that there's coming a day when everything sad will become untrue for those who follow and love Jesus. But I argued last week that experiencing the present tense work of the gospel in our lives is what keeps us from, one, asking Jesus into our hearts over and over and over again, that without a focus on the present tense work of the gospel in your life, you'll be forced to go back in time to validate your very conversion. And if your conversion story is muddy like mine, it'll create despair for you. That the work of the gospel in our lives now creates confidence in the work of the gospel in our lives then. And I also said that um, experiencing the present tense work of the gospel in our lives is what keeps us from falling into the trap of easy believism. This idea that I made a decision for Jesus, so I'm good to go. And so I mentioned last week that nowhere in the Bible does it teach that um, you can make a profession of faith and go the rest of your life without some sort of reorientation of your thoughts and your affection and your will and be good to go in the end. And in fact, there's an entire doctrine in Scripture devoted to the idea that you will see progressive gospel transformation from now until the day you die or Jesus returns, namely the doctrine of sanctification. But then lastly... And maybe most importantly, I argue that experiencing the present tense work of the gospel in your life um, is what keeps us from living a lifeless, 
powerless Christianity in the here and now. That, that God didn't solely intend to rescue you from sin's penalty, past tense, but he also intends to rescue you from sin's power, present tense, in your life. That uh, You might say it this way. In those moments that you feel crippled by fear, the gospel has something to say. That in those moments that you're riddled with doubt, the gospel has something to say. That in those moments that you feel like you're beyond the reach of God's grace, when you see your sin uh, in, in all of its fullness, the gospel has something to say. In those moments that you feel like you're a varsity Christian, the gospel has something to say. In those moments that you struggle with the approval of others, the gospel has something to say. In those moments that you feel lonely, that you feel alone in life, the gospel has something to say. In those moments that you find yourself waving your fists at the Almighty in anger, the gospel has something to say. And in those moments that you find your life completely spiraling out of control, the gospel has something to say. So I posed this question last week. How is the gospel good news to you today? Present tense, can you answer that kind of question? That's the kind of question that I'm seeking the answer to constantly in my life and for all of our lives as a church. And if your answer is, I'm not sure that I can answer that question very well, that's okay. Don't, don't hit the panic button because we're seeking to um, foster that kind of culture as a church, even moving forward. Um, as, as a part of our community group uh, gatherings, we're seeking to um, present questions that drive at the present tense reality and work of the gospel in your life as we engage present tense sin and unbelief in our very lives. And so um, as we move forward as a church, I think we're going to find ourselves uh, more readily able to answer that question. How is the gospel good news to you presently? How is Jesus the Savior sweet to you presently in your life? That God never intended to convert you and leave you stranded till the day you die. He intended for you to have life and life to the full. That he intends you uh, to see Jesus as supremely sweet in the midst of your fears, in the midst of your doubts, in the midst of your rebellion, in the midst of your self-righteousness. Um, that he intends for you to see Jesus as supremely sweet in the midst of your loneliness, in the midst of your anger, in the midst of your hurt in the midst of your chaos, that the gospel is for you now. The gospel is for you today. And so that's my attempt at catching you up if you weren't here the last couple of weeks or if you were serving back in kids' ministry um, or if you just fell asleep in the middle of the service. I don't know why you would need to be caught up, but um, that's my um, effort at doing that. I don't think I did justice at all to uh, the last two weeks. So again, if you weren't here, go back and listen to uh, the sermon podcast online, and you'll get a more robust unpacking of those things. But in light of everything I just shared, we now move into this second piece of DNA um, that we need to give consideration to alongside the gospel. And, and this is a huge buzzword thrown around the church these days. It's this idea of community. Now, here's the frustrating thing about community. You want it, and you don't want it at the same time. You long for relationships with other people, and yet you run in the opposite direction rhythmically and regularly. You long to know people and to be known by people, and yet it devastates you, the thought of 
truly knowing people and being known by people, just the sheer messiness of that. So the question is why? Why does that kind of tension exist? That's what I'm after this morning. I want to answer that question as we move forward. And in order to do so, I think we have to give a condensed sort of biblical theology of this idea of community. We have to go back to the very beginning, uh, to creation itself, to Genesis 1 and 2, in order to answer this type of question. And so we're going to do that. Um, we're going to kind of jump around a little bit this morning um, as we unpack uh, community from beginning to end in the scriptures. Um, but if you want to, you can go ahead and open up to Genesis 1. Uh, that's where we'll be starting out this morning. First book of your Bible, just beyond the table of contents. You don't have to go too far. And as you're flipping there, uh, let me throw out what I believe to be true, what I believe the scriptures say about community. That we desire community because God is a community. And we're designed to image God. That's where I'm going this morning. That we desire community because God is a community. And we're designed to image God. Now let me unpack that. First of all, God himself is a community. That uh, we as Christians believe that there is one God who eternally exists uh, in three distinct persons. Namely, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who are each fully and equally God. Equal in power. Equal in glory. Equal in honor. Without division of essence. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, every analogy to try to attempt to explain the Trinity fails. They're all terrible. Don't buy into one when you hear it. Don't then regurgitate it to other people. They all fail because we can't unpack the comprehensive nature of the, the character and being of God. You just can't do it. That, um, the, the beauty is while we can't fully comprehend God, we can know him truly as he's revealed himself to us in the scriptures, and scripture does reveal to us that God himself is a community. Consider the following verses. They'll be up on the screen for you. Um, Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so in the beginning you have God, namely God the Father, and you have God the Spirit hovering as a part of this creation Process. So God the Father, God the Spirit, the first and third persons of the Trinity. If you fast forward to the gospel according to John, uh, John chapter 1 tells us this in the first few verses. It says, in the beginning was the Word. And John goes on to tell us that the Word is Jesus Christ himself who took on flesh. It says, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we have all three persons of the, the Trinity, of the Godhead, uh, a part of this creation story that's unfolding uh, back in Genesis 1 and 2. But if those verses aren't explicit enough for you, perhaps the most compelling passage uh, in arguing for the Trinitarian God of the Bible, one God... Uh, existing in three distinct persons would be Matthew chapter 3 in which you encounter the scene of Jesus' baptism. I'll throw this one up on the screen as well. Look at this. It says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. So at the scene of Jesus' baptism, you have God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, being baptized. God the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, descending in the form of a dove. And God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, parting the clouds and saying, This is my beloved Son, Jesus, in whom I'm well pleased. That God has always existed as a perfect community. 
that God didn't create human beings out of a sense of loneliness. Let me debunk that myth really quickly this morning. That if you come into this place and you believe that God created you because he needed your praise, because he was lonely and needed some sort of relational connection from, from some sort of being beyond himself, that's just not biblical. That before the foundations of the world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had this intra-Trinitarian love that, that was uh, being shared amongst them that was sufficient in and of itself and still is to this day. That if you think about that kind of trade, it, it's, it's the worst trade in human history, really. That God would love you and pour out his love upon you and the idea that you could possibly reciprocate that to the same level, God loses in that, in that trade. Right? So it doesn't even make sense from a logical perspective that God would create you because he had a need. Because he's giving more than he's receiving in that relationship in the first place. Not to mention that the Bible doesn't teach that. And so we want to debunk that myth that perfect love has always existed in the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if that's true, as we read on in Genesis 1 and 2, it, it makes sense that we would long for community. Because we're designed to image the God who made us. We're designed to mirror his invisible attributes to the world, reflecting his very being and nature to all of creation around us. We're told in Genesis 1.26, many of you know this verse, it says, God said in the creation process, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, one of the things that maybe you, you haven't picked up on along the way is the plurality of, that, of those pronouns. Have you noticed that? That God doesn't say, let me make man in my image after my likeness. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That, that there's this plurality even in creating us as image bearers that, that plays into the creation process itself as we're designed in the image of God. That we're designed to be a community of both unified and diverse people. Unified because there's one God, diverse because that one God exists in three distinct persons. And in fact, if you read on further into Genesis 2, the creation story itself, the one thing that God said wasn't good is for man to be alone, right? God creates, if you read the first two chapters of the Bible, every time he creates, he says, that's good, and so is that. And hey, that's not too bad either. That's pretty good. And, and so is that. And then he creates image bearers and goes, that's very good. And the one time he says that, that there's a problem that is not good is when he looks at Adam in the garden, he says, you're alone. And I have a problem with that because I'm a communal God by nature, and I've created you to image me, and you don't do that well in, under the current uh, context. So that we see in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, and we know that he goes on to uh, create Eve uh, out of Adam, and there is a community that exists, and, and, and we fast forward to present day, we're a part of that story, that you and I were designed for community, that's why we long for relationships with other people, that's why we long for communication, it's why there are over 1.2 billion Facebook users uh, present day. That to a degree, we want to know people and we want to be known by people. Why? Because you and I bear the image of a communal God. Now, if that were the end of the story, all would be right and good, right? Um, we'd all be one big happy family, no crazy uncle in the mix. We'd all get along and it would be fine. We'd experience intimacy with, with God himself and with one another. However, if you've been around long enough with this church, you know that the story doesn't end with Genesis Two. Rather, Genesis 2 is followed by this tragic, devastating chapter known as Genesis 3, in which the birth of sin brings about the death of intimacy and community. 
that very simply put, you could say it this way, that sin kills intimacy, thus killing community. That prior to their sin, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. There were no barriers to intimacy in their relationship with one another, nor were there barriers in their relationship uh, with God. And yet in the wake of sin and shame, we're told according to Genesis 3, 7, as we follow the story, that the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That the fig leaves in Genesis uh, chapter 3 symbolically represent a number of things, but one of the things uh, that the fig leaves do uh, unquestionably represent is a barrier to intimacy that sin creates between image bearers. And, and so we see that uh, even in our context, right? We, we go about life wearing these proverbial fig leaves. We cover up the, the ugly parts of our lives, of our stories. We walk around as multi-layered people, and you have to pull back numerous layers to get to the real person underneath all of that. Even our approach to social media verifies this to be true, right? Because what do we do? I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, we'll take a picture, but we'll edit it 18 times before we actually post it onto the World Wide Web. And then even the, the very words that we put as we post that image, we, we rewrite and think about a dozen times before we actually commit to a phrase or two that we want to go alongside that picture. So that we've now given people a photoshopped version of ourselves by the time it's actually out there for all to see. It's really strange that there's a sense in which uh, we don't retreat from social media because we deeply desire to be known by people, but we're terrified to give them the real version of who we are. That They can get the photoshopped version of us, and we're okay with that to some extent, but to peel back the, the layers themselves... Um, and to show all of the sin and unbelief and ugliness underneath the surface is just something we're not comfortable doing, which I'm going to go on to argue is a gospel misfiring because if we really believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's done what he says he's done for us, then our identities are secure in Christ and we can actually know people and be known by people and that identity is not shaken in the midst of that. For now, let's continue on with the story of Genesis 3 because we go on to see that sin doesn't just kill intimacy between image bearers, but also intimacy between the image bearer and God himself. That um, prior to their sin, Adam and Eve walked with God intimately in the garden, and yet in the wake of their sin, they sought to hide from God's presence. If you look at the very next verse in Genesis 3, um, verse 8, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God in the wake of their sin, uh, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That the fig leaves uh, protect us uh, as image bearers from one another, and, and the trees protect us in all of their covering from the God of the universe who can't possibly see us, because you can actually win a game of hide-and-go-seek with God, right? Wrong. Tragically, the story continues on. Again, we're a part of it. You and I, um, like our first parents, Adam and Eve, were designed to mirror God. We're designed to be communal people, and yet, tragically, we run from community. We're afraid to be known. And, and we even see that in the local church, right? People, people bounce. It's easy to bounce from church to church. You just kind of put in your time until you start to get below the surface, and then, and then we run. Because we're afraid to actually press into that and be known and see God do um, real heart-level work in our lives. Real gospel transformation-type work in our lives. We, we as a people, um, as humanity, have traded community for isolation. 
We've traded interpersonal relationships for human autonomy. You might say the mirror has been shattered in terms of our uh, mirroring God's image well. And so let me ask a diagnostic question this morning that I hope we can all sit with, which is this. Um, What are some of the barriers to community in your own life? How would you answer that question? Um, If we were sitting across the table over a cup of coffee or lunch and I asked you that question, what are some of the barriers to community in your own life? What would you say? Let me just give uh, some answers to that question that might be true, and this is not an exhaustive list of answers, but perhaps it's a comfort idol. Um, Maybe it's the answer is I'd really just rather stay in my PJs than get up off the couch and engage other human beings. And I think that's real, right? We live in the land of Netflix and Hulu, and you can stay in your PJs for days uh, as long as you don't have to go put in uh, your hours at the job to get your paycheck. It's the kind of world we live in. Is it a comfort idol? Maybe it's a control idol. The more people uh, that come into my life, it's harder to control my environment. Maybe that would be your answer. Um, We've experienced this at a personal level as a family. When it was just me and Brooks, we could control our circumstances pretty well. And then all of a sudden we had our first kid and we realized that she now dictates a lot of our calendar. She's robbed us of our ability to really control our circumstances, our environment. And then, uh, as if that weren't enough, we decided, uh, because we're super wise people, to have another child 13 months later and completely train wreck any hope for control in our lives. And we've lost control at this point. We have none. Um, you're seeing the darkest, ugliest, chaotic, uh, most chaotic version of, of our stories that we've seen uh, in a long time. Maybe that's your story. Maybe it's a control idol. You're, you're afraid that you're going to lose the grip on your life if you engage with other people. Maybe it's an approval idol. Maybe the, the response would be, the more people I bring around, the more possibility of someone rejecting me. And so it's just easier for me to hang out with one or two people that I know like me and not actually take that kind of a risk. Maybe it's an aversion to diversity. Maybe the mentality is, as long as everyone's like me, then I'm good. I'll press into that kind of community. And we all know that doesn't work in the church, right? Because the only thing that we can bank on that's common amongst us is that Jesus spilled his blood for us. Beyond that, we're not promised that we have anything in common with with one another other than our Savior. Maybe it's an aversion to unity. Maybe it's, I don't get along well with other people, so I just retreat into the corner and just hang out with me because I'm a difficult human being, and and, and we kind of, we blame it on our own sin problem as to why we retreat, and it sounds really noble. Or maybe, and, and I would argue that this is at the top of many people's lists, maybe it's a fear of sin being exposed. Maybe the mentality is, I'll I'll engage in community as long as we're filling in the blank with with more systematic theology, uh, with more biblical doctrinal answers uh, so we can grow in our knowledge of of truth. And and as long as we then jump past the heart and move to the program that we're going to then engage in for our lives to become better. Um, But don't ask me to engage at a heart level in, in the things that Uh, are really uh, causing an abrasion, an abrasive rub uh, between us and the gospel where the misfirings are happening for us. Don't ask me to engage in sin and unbelief in my life and actually talk about how the gospel applies there because that's getting a little too deep for me. I'm not sure I want to go there. I'm not sure I want to know other people's stories in that way. I'd just rather pretend that they have their stuff together because that's more taxing for me to engage if they don't. And I certainly don't want them to know that I don't have all of my stuff together. What does that look like for you? What, what are some of the barriers to community in your own life? And how do those barriers reveal sin and unbelief in your heart? 
think we've got to get down to the root of the problem in our lives as to why we retreat rather than pressing in. See, here's the good news. Genesis 3 is not the end of the story either. Um, In fact, before the foundations of the world, before sin entered the picture, threatening to kill intimacy and community forever, before all of that, before any of that happened, God had in mind a plan to redeem a community of people for his glory and their joy. I love the way John Stott puts it. He says this. He says, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. For his purpose, which was conceived in a past eternity, which is being worked out in history, and which is being perfected in a future eternity, his purpose is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church, that is to call out of the world a people for his own glory. That the church is not an accident. Rather, the church is God's plan to restore us to our original purpose of mirroring his very being and nature as we walk together as reconciled people under the banner of the gospel. The church is not a community, or it is a community. It's not a building. It's not a program. That um, If you're a Christian, you don't go to church. We, we get caught up in that language a lot, and there's grace for that. Like, don't walk out of here and, like, freak out if you say that from this point on. But, but the reality is that we don't go to church. We are the church, and we go to be with the church in various environments, whether it be these gatherings on Sunday morning, whether it be the context of our community groups, um, whether it be coffee shops or restaurants or bars or dinner tables or parks, and the list goes on, that very simply put, we could define the church as this, as community redeemed, very simply, that unlike other forms of community, uh, the redeemed community that we call the church, here's the beauty of it, is it's not based on performance. It's not that you're in or out based on what you do or don't do. Rather, the, the redeemed community that we call the church is based on uh, identity. It's based on who you are, not what you've done or haven't done. Rather, we look to the cross of Jesus Christ and say, Jesus has done everything sufficient and necessary to redeem us to God and to one another. And so we base our identity upon who Jesus is and what he's done so that we can make statements like this. This is what I'd put out there as the the identity statement of the church. This is up on the screen. This is our identity. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God, finding our righteousness to be lacking. Thus, we trust in a righteousness not our own. We trust in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, gifted to us by grace through faith. This is our common thread. That as the church, we believe that Jesus lived the life that we could never live and died the death that we deserve to die. And in doing so, he purchased us, giving us a new identity and reconciling us to God and to one another. And under the banner of the gospel now, the church has the opportunity, has the privilege, has the honor of mirroring God's very being and nature. And think about it. What better display of the unity and diversity of the Trinitarian God than the church? A a diverse group of misfits who all unite under the banner of the gospel. That makes sense? And so if that's true, one of the biggest lies that we could ever buy into is this. My relationship with Jesus is personal. It's between me and him. It's really not. I hear that all the time. Is there a personal aspect to your relationship with Jesus? Is it your faith? Do you have to own that? Yes and amen. We don't discredit that reality. But the truth is Jesus didn't spill his blood to redeem us into isolation. 
He redeemed us into a family, into a covenant community. Tim Chester says it this way. He says, we are not saved individually and then choose to join the church as if it were some club or support group. Christ died for his people, plural, and we're saved when by faith we become part of the people for whom Christ died. See, here's the great misunderstanding. Here's the way that a lot of people view the church. And if you view the church this way, you'll never experience true community. Some of you who went through the most recent gospel partnership course um, may have seen this graphic. That Many of us view the church as a, a juggling act of sorts. Um, that for many of us, the idea is I'm an individual uh, and I'm seeking to juggle all the various responsibilities uh, and things in my life. And so if I get overwhelmed using the juggling analogy, I'm going to have to drop a ball. I'm going to have to drop a bowling pin. Something's got to go. And the church is not beyond the realm of getting cut in that decision-making process. The, the church is just a list of, uh, or one more thing in the list of responsibility in my life. And if life gets overwhelming, I'll just cut the church out. I'll cut back my involvement, my engaging in the community of God, and life will smooth out for me. How many times have you heard this? I've heard this dozens upon dozens of times pre-pastoral ministry and in the midst of pastoral ministry, people saying, man, man, things are really just uh, becoming overwhelming in my life, so I need a season for me. I need a season to kind of work things out for me, uh, to, to kind of uh, fix the bumps and bruises in my family, and when we get that all under control, then we'll re-engage. Um, can I just be honest with you and, and say that that is an unbelievably shallow understanding of why the church exists and who the church is. This idea that somehow by retreating from the covenant community of God, the people that Jesus bled out and died for, that that's going to create more healthiness in your life is a complete uh, misfire, biblically. That there's a better way to think. Um, let me show you an alternative graphic that maybe will, will help out. Um, that rather than viewing the church as something to be juggled with everything else in your individualistic life, what if we viewed the church, rather, um, and all of our responsibilities as spokes of a wheel, and at the center is not me as an isolated individual, but rather us as a people sharing our lives for the glory of God? What if we viewed our lives that way? So that the church is not something that you drop, it's not another ball to be juggled. Rather, the church speaks into and shapes um, all of the facets of our lives as we press into community and seek wisdom as we move forward in all of the areas of our lives as we become more like Jesus and reflect the glory of God to everyone around us, that we shine brighter as we press in rather than retreat. Now, that, that's crazy for a lot of people in the context of our Americanized Christian subculture, this idea that I would invite people into my life and that I would allow them to speak into these various areas of my life so that by the power of the Holy Spirit um, and wisdom in a multitude of counselors, as Proverbs says, that I might move forward. Rather, what we do is, is we compartmentalize and we say, you can have this part of my life, church, um, but there are areas that, that are mine to hold on to that are just for me, uh, and you're not welcome there. What if we engage in, in this kind of model? What would that look like for us to move forward and to see God at work in all of the facets of our lives because we press into the community of God, the redeemed people of God? And so the question becomes, what might that kind of community actually look like? 
What might it look like for us to share our lives for the glory of God? What does that even mean? I'm using new language here. I used to use the language of doing life together, and I'm not sure that that, I don't think this is necessarily perfect, but I'm not sure that that, that's kind of floaty. It doesn't, like, anybody can do that. We can all do life together, Um, and, and I own that. I use that phrase myself for years, but I think this is maybe more helpful, us sharing our lives with God's glory as our purpose. It goes back to the very first Uh, message in this series of why we're doing this in the first place, to reflect the glory of God with our lives collectively. And so if that's our goal, to share our lives with one another for the glory of God, here's what I think uh, that does uh, as we come together. I think here's, here's our goal. One, we're seeking to help one another to fall more deeply in love with Jesus. So uh, we're seeking to point one another to the, the beauty of the cross the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the person and work of Jesus in the midst of fears, in the midst of doubts, in the midst of anger, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of approval issues, in the, in the midst of all of those things, um, we're, we're seeking to point one another to the beauty and wonder of who Jesus is and how the gospel speaks into those things. Secondly, um, we're seeking to obey him in ever-increasing ways. So we're not just receiving the grace of God and then going, I'm just going to abuse that now. But rather, we then respond that the grace of God would compel us to move forward in repentance and faith as we move toward being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, as Romans 8 puts it. And then lastly, that we would be a people who proclaim his excellencies to a world that desperately needs good news, just like us. That we don't turn that inward on itself and become a holy huddle, but rather there's an outward bent to that, which we'll talk about next week as we get into this value of mission. I mean, how amazing would it be uh, if we pressed into this kind of community and shared our lives in this way with one another for God's glory? Um, What kind of brilliance and radiance would that light look like for the world around us as we reflect the glory of the God who made us and redeemed us? Now, how do we do that? What does that what does that practically look like in, in the everyday? Let me, for the last few minutes of this, morning, uh, l- this morning's message, let me try to flesh that, that out by taking you to uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. I'll be really quick about this, but I want to take you through some bullet points of gospel-centered community so that we can kind of see on the ground how this fleshes out. Um, if you want, you can go ahead and flip to Romans chapter 12. Um, that's where we'll be for the remainder of these last few minutes together. Verses 9 through 13, it's up on the screen. It says this, Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let me, let me attempt to unpack some of these characteristics of gospel-centered community and to give credit where credit's due. Much of this is adapted from Matt Chandler's book, Creature of the Word. If you haven't read that book, you should read it. It's amazing. It'll, it'll give you a more robust understanding of what gospel-centered community even is and can look like. Um, but let me just unpack these one by one. That first, Paul says, let love be genuine, that you have this characteristic of genuine love, that, that the entire nature of our relationship with one another as Christians is the fact that we've all rebelled against God and need a Savior. And thus we acknowledge that we're far from perfect and that the only perfect one is Jesus. We're, we're really not saying, hey, look at us. We're really trying to reflect the glory of the Son, Jesus Christ, who is the center, because if people look at us, they're going to be disappointed. If we're trying to get people to become Christians based on 
uh, our very records of merit, they're, they're not going to find interest. But if we can point them to the one who's redeemed us and point to his person and work, we actually have hope that Jesus is the only perfect one. And if that's true, we shouldn't be surprised that others aren't perfect, nor should we feel the need to display a facade of perfection with other people. That in Christ, we're free from pretending. In Christ, we're free from fakery and surface-level community. That you might say it this way, that we're free to love and be loved because Christ loved the unlovely in loving us. Let me say that again. That we're free to love and be loved because Christ loved the unlovely in loving us. Secondly, Paul says, abhor what is evil, that there is a hatred of evil that's characteristic of gospel-centered community, that on the one hand, we do want to foster environments that, um, that create honesty and vulnerability and transparency. We want to see those things. We want to have safe space for people to engage in those ways, and yet we don't want those environments to be warm and welcoming to unrepentant, ongoing sin. That gospel-centered community, you might say, embraces sinners while making war on sin. That John Owen, the great Puritan, said it this way, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That there's no neutral ground in the battle for your holiness. That you and I need this redeemed community that we call the church because we have blind spots. We can't see many of the areas of sin and unbelief in our own lives. I certainly can't. I need people around me. It's good that I got married because I think pretty highly of myself. And I needed someone else to help me to see just how wicked and depraved I really am and just how glorious Jesus is in the wake of my depravity and my need for him. That without others, it's hard for us to see our sin. And if we can't see it, we can't wage war against it. If you can't see your enemy, you can't battle your enemy. You're the greatest enemy of your own joy, and so am I. And we need a community that will walk alongside of us and lovingly and graciously help us to kill sin before it kills us. Paul goes on to say, hold fast to what is good, that there's this encouragement of good, that the goal is not simply to call fouls on one another, that when you uh, connect here, uh, notice that one of the things we didn't hand out was a whistle. Like we, we're, we're not trying to create a culture where you just blow fouls on, on one another constantly. How discouraging would that be if we treated each other like animals and we just rubbed one another's noses in the piles of sin that we make in our lives over and over and over again without any sort of encouragement or celebration of the work of God in our lives in terms of our sanctification, the way that he's actually shaping us and growing us. That as we help one another to put sin to death, that we have to speak life into one another. We have to do that. We have to encourage one another as we see growth in the gospel. It's a both and. It's a hatred of evil and an encouragement of good. Paul goes on to say, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That there's this familial affection that Paul talks about. This honor that Paul talks about. That, that the idea is that this redeemed community known as the church is actually a family, that you're surrounded by brothers and sisters right now, that the people surrounding you this morning are not just other service attenders. If you're surrounded by other Christians, that's not how we would define them, that you and I are a bunch of children who have been adopted by God our Father through the person and work of Jesus so that God is our dad. We are siblings with one another, and Jesus, according to the author of Hebrews, is our big brother. And what that means if that's true, if the church is a family, it means that you're going to experience some real challenges with one another, right? 
impossible uh, for brothers and sisters not to fight from time to time. However, here's where the gospel comes to bear. Um, You'll never engage in a church of any size where you won't have the crazy uncle that drives you nuts at some point that makes you want to leave that church and go find the next one because you think somehow that one won't have a crazy uncle. You're never going to have that kind of perfect experience. But the beauty of the gospel is that those who believe it know that even though some brothers and sisters in Christ may get on our nerves, we're deeply, deeply aware that our big brother Jesus has a deep affection for us despite all of our imperfections. That his affection for us motivates our affection for this family called the church, even when they drive us nuts. Very practically, it also means that you notice when your brother or sister is missing from the table, right? If you take the analogy of sitting around the table uh, around the holidays, we know when someone's missing. And if we care about that person at all, we're sad that they're not there. And yet, how often do we go for weeks and maybe even months and, and someone goes missing from the church and we just, we, we don't even press into that. We don't even engage that. That if we're a family that we want to be engaging people when we don't see them at the proverbial table. It also means that, that we look out for one another in a way that we would look out for our own flesh and blood. Brooks and I have seen this uh, immensely over the past five weeks uh, in welcoming our second child into the world. Um, I feel like my mom's been cooking for me every two or three days because people from the church have been engaging us in that way and providing for us to meet our needs, which has been huge because in the midst of our sleep deprivation, to add one more task uh, to the list of tasks just, just seems uh, unmanageable. And so for the church to come alongside of us and treat us like family in that way is such a tangible representation of the community of God at its best. That we serve one another, we meet one another's needs. It means that we reconcile with those that we have real issues with. That's what family does, right? We don't don't just let things uh, be swept under the rug for years and years. Maybe, Maybe you have a story that includes that, but we all know that there's something off about that, right? We would all say that that's not the way life should be. I mean, even those of us who have train wreck stories of family members that that we don't have a healthy relationship with, we all know and would define that as unhealthy. There's a reason that we look at it um, that way. And the same is true within the life of the church, that we don't let things go unresolved, but rather we seek reconciliation with one another that flows from the reconciliation that we've received from God in Christ. Paul says, do not be slothful, in zeal, be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. That gospel-centered community includes this characteristic of a desire to serve. That, that Jesus is the servant savior who transforms us from lovers of self who, who seek to be the center of the divine drama to people who love others and God. That's what the gospel does. That in the same way that Jesus came as the embodiment of God to serve others and give his life for them, the church is meant to be the embodiment of God in the culture in the world, serving others and sacrificing for others in a way that points to the person and work of Jesus. That because we've been served by Jesus, we're happy to serve others. Paul says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. That there's a, a future hope that in hard times, this is where the community comes alongside. We need to remind one another that there actually is coming a day when everything sad will become untrue. Are there not moments in your life when you need someone to speak that into your life? 
And are there not moments where God would call you to speak that into the lives of others when everything is coming unraveled, that we need to be pointed uh, to a future hope, to a day when everything is going to be set right, and we need to be encouraged to hold on, to hold on to hope. And there's also a present patience. We need to be reminded to exercise patience as we walk through those seasons of pain, those seasons of suffering, being reminded by others in this community that this is for our good and God's glory, that he's actually shaping us into the image of Christ in all that we're going through. And lastly, constant prayer, that we need a community that will surround us in prayer. This is what God intends, not a people who say, hey, man, I'll pray for you. And then you have no assurance that that's actually going to happen because it's just a cultural thing that we say. It's like hello or goodbye in the Bible Belt. Yeah, bro, I'll pray for you. And then you, you never know if that's actually going to happen. How sweet it is, is it whenever you're actually a part of a community where you know people are doing that? And, and, and you're committed to doing that for other people. And, and you even feel the, just the joy and sense of like their prayers are at work in your life that God is listening and that things are unfolding and happening as a result of them engaging your life in that way. And then lastly, Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That it's this no person left behind mentality that to show hospitality is not simply to open up our homes to one another. It's actually to open up our lives to one another, to invite people in to our lives, to bring them along for the ride, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and I'm talking Christians and non-Christians alike. So as you consider this list that's up on the screen, in what ways has God gifted you to actually live out this value of community under the banner of the gospel? And in what ways can you grow more in your understanding and belief of, of the gospel as it relates to community? Where might God want to shape you and chisel you and do the hard work of, of conforming you into the image of his son. See, here's the beauty. Gospel-centered community is both strange and compelling. You could say it this way, that the greatest apologetic of the gospel is a community of people who believe it and live by it. That's the greatest apologetic of the gospel for a world looking in that doesn't believe. That as people look in on this redeemed community that we call the church, they will see They'll get a glimpse of the one who redeems, namely Jesus himself. And so next week, we're going to move into this value of mission. We're going to talk about the mission of God, which is really inseparable from the community of God. We're going to take communion in just a moment. And we do that here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing the shed blood of Jesus. Um, this is a meal for Christians. If you're a Christian, we take communion as a collective remembering and proclamation of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so as you come to take communion this morning, just sit with the reality that you've been redeemed into a family. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.